You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated publications, One Step Off the Grid and the EV-focused The Driven, which is mainly our topic today, electric vehicles. But uh, before that, uh, joining me as usual is co-host David Leach from ITK. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. I trust all our listeners uh, are well. And uh, it's great to have a very switched on and switched in uh, guest joining us today. <laughs> that's, a bit of a, that's a bit of a plug. Um, joining us today, and we should introduce him straight away on, 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 that, um, on that description, uh, Richie Merzian, the um, climate policy expert from the Australia Institute. Thanks for joining us, Richie. Thank you, Giles, and thanks, David. You released this week a very detailed um, report about the need for a um, a fuel efficiency tax or fuel um, emissions standard in Australia. This has actually been thought of as a really good idea by very many people for the last 15 years. Why haven't we had one? That's a very good question because uh, we've had numerous Australian governments, including Labor governments at the federal level, commit to them. We've had multiple reviews and inquiries and reports. Um, and on top of that, you have you know 80% of the global light vehicle market that have fuel efficiency standards. Uh, but unfortunately, as is the case in climate in Australia, politics gets in the way. Um, we've also had a fair bit of you know, disinformation uh, out there as well. It's been rolled up in scare campaigns. You've had a lot of political lobbying against it as well uh, because it's been in the interest of some legacy car companies to have Australia remain you know, a base economy that can absorb any old vehicle. Uh, and as a result, Australians have been literally paying. Well, that's right. We'll get to that. I mean, your, your report actually says that um, had we um, introduce a fuel emission standard in 2016, as had been suggested at the time, um, but was rejected by the coalition government, we'd be saving $6 billion um, in petrol consumption since that time. And, and, and remarkably, just in the last year, $2 billion. Is that simply because the price of petrol has gone up? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the savings just increase and increase. And on top of that, Giles, you know, something that your listeners would appreciate, we'd also would have saved about 9 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, which is, oddly enough, the equivalent of all our domestic flights in one year in pre-COVID times. So there would have been a fair bit on the savings. And Richie, those savings uh, always depend on exactly what the standard specifies. Maybe we should just set the scene for our listeners that may not be uh, as in touch with this as everyone, and that is that broadly, I think, the Australian fleet new vehicle sales are, what, about 196 grams of carbon per per, per kilometre or a litre, I, I forget the unit, uh, versus European average, which is a little under 100 already. Is that, is that you, can, you can remind me the exact numbers. No, I think you're, you're in the right ballpark there. I mean, yeah, but you're, you're quite right. It really depends on the level of ambition. I mean, Australia does have a voluntary industry-led 
fuel efficiency standard um, led by the FCAI. Um, but, you know, as our report, um, which is written by our fantastic transport researcher, Audrey, Audrey Quick, points out, um, it's a weak standard that that is um, the one that the industry currently have. And even with their weak standard that has a number of loopholes and a number of ways you can wiggle your way out of it, they still fail to meet that weak standard. Um, you know, I always say I haven't met a voluntary standard that I think has 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 merit. And uh, this is part of the, the issue. And we can go further than that and say that even where the standards aren't voluntary, like you in Europe, it's often that the testing regime reveals that in practice, uh, manufacturers don't achieve the standards that they say they're achieving. But let's let's put that to one side. The next thing I want to draw attention to uh, is that in Europe, uh, it might be a little less than 100 grams for new vehicles now. Uh, and of course, in Australia, the average fleet is, is a lot, the average over the entire fleet is a lot higher than for new vehicles, but also putting that to a side, in Europe, they're now requiring at least a 37% reduction from 2019 levels uh, by 2030. And then, of course, pretty much the European Commission has voted and it will be, uh, it's now a, a, a rubber stamp deal to pretty much within Europe uh, have zero by 2035. Have, uh, am I also on the right same page as you with that? Yeah, I mean, the Europeans have just, just leaps and bounds ahead of us. Um, yeah, I think the average passenger vehicle in Australia is about 170 grams of CO2 per kilometre. And it's probably worth, I mean, your, your listeners are probably more on top of this than, than most. But, you know, what we found when we released the report is there was a bit of confusion around fuel efficiency standards versus, you know, tailpipe emissions, um, especially since you often refer to fuel efficiency in sort of CO2 per kilometre um, grams of CO2. But, you know, fuel efficiency is pretty basic at the end of the day. Really, you're just improving the average level of efficiency that manufacturers um, have in terms of the cars that they're selling on your market. And absent a decent level, then you're going to get the least efficient vehicles. And in Australia, 91% of our liquid fuels are imported. So we're paying through the nose for imported oil that we're not even using efficiently. And at the end of the day, we could be bringing these standards in. There's no real technical barriers to doing so. Um, they could be agreed by a Labor government this year. Um, or yeah, yes, and, and, and of course, I always go on about how it would um, improve Australia's energy security to make us less uh, dependent upon imported oil, as well as improving the balance of trade. I mean, we wouldn't need to export as much gas if we were importing less oil from a balance of trade perspective, for instance. Uh, um, uh, but I also wanted to, uh, the question that will immediately be asked by, by the man in the street, and I, I keep getting told I have to think about this person, even though I'd rather be thinking about Tomago aluminium smelter, but, uh, but what impact have you, uh, do you think um, it would mean for, for car prices if those standards were introduced? Yeah, it's a good question. One, one we often get, you know, manufacturers are telling us that we'll have more models available um, certainly more EVs available, including more affordable EVs. Uh, oftentimes, there are like-for-like -like models available of just more efficient cars coming off the assembly line that are in the same ballpark in terms of price. So you're not necessarily looking at more expensive vehicles in terms of the sticker price just because they're more efficient. They're able to make these cars sort of in the same ballpark um, price they're just not being sent here because the manufacturers are penalized if they don't send them to, say, Europe, 
whereas they don't face the same penalties here. And so manufacturers are telling us, well, look, we can't get headquarters to send us the more efficient vehicles here. So that, that at the end of the day, I don't think it's a question of price. I think it's just a question of sending the right signals and the Australian economy doesn't have those signals in place. And and I, I must turn back to Giles, but, uh, but I want to point out uh, that... Let when the you know if, if we uh, stop um, if we talk about what the real politic the fact it's the fact that Japan is the largest uh, supplier of cars to Australia, and Japan is uh, it's obvious is well behind the rest of the world and continues to this day to strongly resist the global impetus to EVs frankly and they say they do that because of the jobs that it risk in Japan even though a lot of cars are made elsewhere. Uh, but also because Japan itself doesn't uh, have the capability to have the green electricity that goes into the manufacturing of the cars. But would you agree that, you know, the industry reports we're seeing coming out from the industry organisation like facts that are sort of, as usual, full of slow down, we don't need to hurry, there's no urgency about this, uh, 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 are largely Toyota-driven? Well, yeah, that was the, the sort of the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald this week was about the secret plans from uh, the FCAI, you know, to basically go slow on fuel efficiency standards. Uh, and we know um, that Toyota is probably one of the, I think, the largest member um, in the FCAI. And they're still a prominent player in the car market and have a fair bit of influence. And then if you look at their influence globally, the NGO influence map that maps out the sort of the lobbying impact of major corporations ranks Toyota up there with Exxon and Chevron in terms of having a negative impact on climate policy globally. So yeah, you have these legacy car companies that haven't made the transition that are slowing things down. Uh, and if we're trying to speed things up, then there's easy win. This is the next cab off the rank when it comes to transport policy in this country. It's great that the Australian government has moved very quickly to bring in you know, modest incentives for electric vehicles through tax reform, but really fuel efficiency standards is the next thing and we could and should be moving on it quickly because this is a bit of a no-brainer. No, that's right, Tim. That was a great report by the Sydney Morning Herald. I think it's long been suspected of the role of Toyota in uh, sort of working behind the scenes, but to sort of uh, produce a document like that and basically catch them red-handed was um, really insightful. I just think it sort of laid out the cards on the table for everyone to understand, which is great. Um, and you're right, Richie, because without those fuel efficiency standards, basically the major car players have no incentive to send EVs to Australia. And we've seen that. Tesla is the only one with a real incentive because it just, it just wants to sell as many cars as it, it, as it, as it can and it's selling electric ones. So it's going to sort of, um, um, it's going to sell 15,000 Model Ys um, in the next five months um, to, before the end of the year. Meanwhile, we're just getting sort of trickle feeds from all the other car companies because they're prioritizing Europe and other markets which do have fuel efficiency standards. How quickly do you think that that can turn around? Well, I mean, I think pretty quickly if, if we send the right signals in place. I mean, then if we, if, if, if the Australian government adopts robust fuel efficiency standards in line with the European Union, which, you know, to be clear, the Australian government's also keen to negotiate a free trade deal with, um, then that would put us at the same level pegging. Um, you know, we'd have the right incentives in place, and I wouldn't see why it would take that long to then make sure that we start getting the models that we need um, to make that transition. And also, this is the kind of the next 
the next sector that needs to be doubled down on, you know, there's enough momentum and electricity right now to make that transition. Now it's time to plug into that to, to clean up transport. And we know transport's what, about a fifth of our emissions. The majority of that's road transport and the majority of that's light vehicles. So this is a great way to buy into that. Yeah, yeah. So what's your reading then of the uh, of the political movements there? Um, I mean, I just remember five years ago when Josh Frydenberg actually wrote an op-ed um, in one of the Murdoch tabloids, or you know, maybe it wasn't for the Murdoch tabloids, I think it might have been one of the Fairfax papers just sort of saying, you know, fuel efficiency standards might be a good idea. Um, and then got shattered down by a Murdoch tabloid who put carbon tax on wheels headlines, and that was it. And he just scurried away. I remember asking him a couple of weeks later at an energy efficiency conference of all places, well, are you going to go through with the fuel efficiency standards? He goes, no, you saw the headlines. We can't do that. And I thought that was pretty pathetic, and I think I've told that story many times. <laughs> we, we had, um, we had uh, uh, Chris Bowen on this podcast um, just a month or so ago, and, um, and before that, and asked him about the sort of the, um, or if I think it might, might have been before that, we asked him about fuel efficiency standards and things like that. And they said, no, that's not our policy. It's really interesting that now, since elected, he's actually saying, no, we're not ruling it out. What do you think it's going to take to get him over the line? Look, I think uh, Minister Bowen knows that transport really is the low-hanging fruit. There's a lot more that you could do in that space. And so there's been already talk of an electric vehicle policy, which is great, a strategy. You know, it's been a long time coming. I think that was the one recommendation out of the store review a few years ago that the coalition agreed to and then gave us the FFS. But it'd be great to have an official EV strategy. I think maybe we might see the fuel efficiency standard if it does come to the fore, either bundled up with that strategy or maybe dealt with separately. But either way, there's certainly positive signals um, coming out of Canberra that once and for all, we might get this done. Yeah, you, you're actually sort of, um, I think you're trying to accelerate that process by um, hosting an electric vehicle uh, policy summit in, uh, in in Canberra later on this month. Um, can, do you feel like telling us what that's about and what you have to achieve? Yeah, we'd have to, ha happy to, and we'll try and work in more driving puns there, Giles, for you as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Completely accidental, i got to say. Yeah, sure, that's right. No, 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 let's put our foot on it. Uh, Basically, we're looking at, um, so the Australian Institute, along with the Smart Energy Council and the Electric Vehicle Council and the new foundation that Mike Cannon-Brooks is setting up called Boundless, are collectively putting on an electric vehicle summit on the 19th of August here in Canberra. Um, and this event really is for those who are in a position to actually push this issue ahead. So a lot of energy uh, ministers are coming, including Minister Bowen, Minister Husick, the industry minister many different ministers from across states and territories, as well as numerous members of the industry, the AMWU, a number of other kind of organizations as well. The whole purpose is to say, how do we accelerate uh, our transport and climate policy? Because right now we've had, you know, uh, years and years of putting it, uh, you know, having our foot on the brake. Uh, there's lots of opportunity here. Uh, as I said, the next cab off the rank is fuel efficiency standards. So we're going to be focusing closely on that one and saying, well, what do we really need to do this? Because the work's been done. We know what a robust standard looks like. We don't want to go down the path of just locking in the industry standard for all its flaws. We want to go straight away to what the Europeans have done. How can we do that? And along the way, let's look at what other things we can do. We'll also have a good chunk of uh, time spent on, on vehicle to grid um, and how those two integrate. Um, so there'll be useful conversations to have. But clearly with a focus on advancing policy because we do need to catch up. 
Yes, it's like a lot of sectors, the time for talking is pretty much over as far as uh, we're all concerned. I just wanted to come back to the carbon reduction potential, and you mentioned the broadly 20%. I mean, very very roughly, um, transport emissions have been growing, uh, you know, whereas most other sectors have been relatively stagnant or, or uh, over the past few years. And also, I, I, I like to compare what we can achieve in transport with, you know, uh, what can be achieved under the safeguard scheme where the target is like 5 million a year tonnes of reduction. And in my opinion, that's going to be really hard work getting that 5 million tonnes because, because there's so many export intensive industries all with special cases to plead. The ETs, everyone... going back to the old acronyms, hey? Yes, indeed. And, and and they're all big companies with big lobby groups, whereas a vehicle standard, all you're going to do is piss off a few, uh, you know, car companies like Toyota. Uh, and, and, and it seems to me you could get five million tons a year out, out of uh, out of it uh, more easily. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a fair bit you can do. I mean, it, it's a slow uptake. This is this is the thing, but it will build up quickly. So It'll, de- it'll definitely help on, in terms of hitting 2030, but really the benefits will pick up quite quickly after that as well. So if you are looking at, say, like the ACT, um, looking at you know a whole suite of policies because transport is the main envelope uh, for your emissions, then you know this, the, these policies just fall straight into place. Yeah, I, I do think it will help them, uh, but it's just as much for 2050 as it is for 2030. And, and it's worth remembering that both those targets have now been locked into this climate bill that was agreed just last week by the lower house. And we can see in Europe that, in fact, they tax uh, car companies per uh, kilometre for not meeting the standard. And this gives this also provides a big incentive to get electric vehicles in because that's the only way you can drop the overall. So if you set the standard below what internal combustion engines can achieve, then you essentially force the manufacturers to put some electric vehicles in there to get the overall thing. Which brings me to the kind of uh, charging infrastructure and the um, incentives that we need, if any, for uh, large elect- for, for new electric vehicles. Now, I- I'm in the group that says that you should incentivise new electric vehicles, Richie, because in my mind, once you get them, you get the second-hand market yep. going. And in the second-hand market, uh, the buyers get all the benefit of the lower costs and still get the fuel savings. And that way, the average uh, Joe is better off. Yep. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, we should be in, you know, and that's why governments have a key role to play to make sure they switch their fleet straight away so that they can start creating that supply of secondhand. Um, no, spot on. And I mean, there's even sort of questions now that we're clearly a car taker, not a car maker as a country. You know, there's, um, you know, restrictions have been removed on grey imports, but there'd be it'd be interesting to see if you could just do a mass, a mass purchase of secondhand EVs and bring them here straight away as well. I mean, you know, I know the good car company does a bunch of good things in that space, but you know, it's still um, small bickies in terms of the overall number. So I, I think I think it'd be really worth exploring that space more. Uh, we're talking to Richie Merzian from the Climate Institute. 
Richard, I just wonder if time to move on to sort of um, sort of broader themes now. I mean, you've been in the climate space for many, many years. Um, you've been on Australia's international negotiating team, appearing at some of the UN conferences and things like that. I mean, we know that the coalition government has gone. We know that Labor's come in. We know we've now got a legislated climate bill, which is great and a target, which is 43%, which is fine, but really not according to the science. What's your kind of reading of the situation? I mean, is there real momentum now to sort of push forward and go beyond, you know, Labor's sort of um, better but still modest targets? Yeah, look, I mean, I was up at Parliament last week when when the bill was going through the lower house and there was just a lot of really good energy. Um, People are feeling joyous, you know, like this is the first positive climate legislation in years, you know, maybe since we originally had a carbon price legislated in. So it, it's just, it's definitely a good first step. And it shows you that it can be constructive. Like it wasn't just that Labor dropped the bill and said, hey, everyone, this is it, take it or leave it. You know, the Teal Independents, the Greens all tried to make it better. Like everyone was conscious of the fact that there is a clear need to increase the emission reduction target to one in line with the Paris Agreement, in line with a safe climate, 1.5 degrees. But failing that, what can we do to make this better? And it was improved, it, you know, from the first iteration to, to what it was then. The consequential amendments are also important too. So it's not just the 43%. Alongside that, the minister will have to report on how he's progressing every year based on advice from the Climate Change Authority. He'll have to take advice from Climate Change Authority that's made public around what the next target should be, the next NDC, so for 2035. But on top of that, the Paris Agreement is finally being integrated into whole-of-government operations. So that means the Export Finance Australia or the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund or Infrastructure Australia, all these major financing agencies by the government have to factor in the Paris Agreement. So they can't just sign off carte blanche fossil fuel projects like they have in the past. They'll have to actually think, is this in line with keeping to a safe climate? Now, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the end of it, or it'll mean no more fossil fuel funding, but it's certainly a good start. And that's why I think there's some good momentum and, and a fair bit of hope in Canberra for once on climate. And it's probably, it's probably worth... Oh, sorry, Giles. Sorry, Giles. No, 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 I just got a little question, actually, there, just about the Climate Change Authority, who are now going to be returned to being the body that, you know, of, of sound advice. But that body has been basically defenestrated over the last few years. It's got barely any people there. They've had to outsource some of their reports that they've been required to do. Um, what do you hope to see there? I mean, presumably, sort of bulk up the numbers, possibly even a change of personnel and a change of leadership to make sure it's doing the job that everyone expects it to do. Yeah, look, there, there's a lot that you could say about the Climate Change Authority. I mean, the chair is still uh, you know, Grant King, who um, was with the BCA when it said that a, you know, a 45% emission reduction target was economy wrecking, but maybe 43% is okay. Uh, <laughs> that 2% will make all the know, difference. Right. right. You know, like, you know and, uh, and so, like, yeah, the CCA, I think, used to have, like, about 80 people. Now it's about the size of a team in Canberra. Um, you know, and it was pulled from its Melbourne office to be closer to, you know, the, the, the Death Star here in Canberra as well under, under Minister Taylor. So, look, there's a lot that you need to do to rebuild the capacity there. You're right. Climate Change Authority recently did a review of international offsets, which it seemed to delegate out to a consulting firm to do. And um, we're expecting the report back anytime soon. And there's a good chance, you know, the, the report will say, hey, how good are international offsets? Um, so, 
it, it does need to build up their expertise. That is one of the shortcomings from this climate bill. It didn't really address that. Mm. David. Uh, well, the other thing I just wanted to point out more generally uh, for the, from a global perspective is something I've been focusing on a bit this year, which is that the actual transport uh, emissions, particularly shipping transport, uh, are heavily influenced by the actual, like something like 42% of global shipping by tonnes actually represents the, the shipping of oil, LNG and coal. And, and so the general process of decarbonising the world has a little bit of an accelerator kicker in there, is in that it should automatically reduce uh, shipping emissions uh, to some extent. And I think it's uh, the other thing that we all need to remind ourselves of is that the 43% is, is a bit of a bullshit number, even if we achieve it, because the starting point and the impact of land use, uh, uh, you know, really means that when we look at what, leaving aside land use emissions would be lucky to be down five or ten percent so far and and all the hard work pretty much remains in front of us that uh, i don't know how you think about all that richie oh no we've we've written about that multiple times there david spot on we've got a, a great report that just goes through this if it just normalize everything because 2005 is just an arbitrary baseline that the federal government picked because it was a high level of deforestation same thing 1990 um, it was a high level of deforestation. And so you kind of start halfway down the race already, down the racetrack. Um, it doesn't make things equal pegging. If you do peg things and normalize it um, compared to, you know, or you take out Lulu CF land use change, um, then, yeah, Australian emissions don't look half as good. So, no, I, I think there's a fair bit that we should be doing to improve how we report on this with a bit more um, honesty about the challenge we face because we haven't decarbonized. So a great report that Hugh Sadler did for the Institute last year showed that out of all the OECD economies, Australia pretty much ranked last in terms of decarbonizing from 2005. And so we've got a lot of heavy lifting to do because we've gotten more carbon intense, not less over the last 20 years, whereas most of our counterpart developed economies have taken big strides. And and I don't, you know, I, I kind of feel in my lot in life often seems to be to rain on parties, uh, um, which I don't really want to do because it is great to see the positive attitude there now. And it's, it's very clear to me that in Parliament, there's an overwhelming consensus when you take the Teals and the Greens, as well as Labor into account that to do more rather than less. And, and, and that's, and we should take advantage of that opportunity. But uh, 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 the the um, uh, the thing I wanted to ask about is scope three emissions. I mean, we've had the argument from uh, the prime uh, prime minister that scope of three emissions are not the way to think about things. But I mean, how do you uh, think about scope three emissions and who should be responsible for them? Yeah, look, I think if we've got a global problem, then we need to look at how we bring down global emissions. And if you're the third largest dealer in the problem then you've got a moral responsibility to deal with that, whether it's because, you know, just because you and FCCC accounting make you only responsible for your territorial um, emissions, your domestic emissions, it doesn't necessarily make it right for you to ever expand your fossil fuel um, exports. And that's the, that's the case here. Like you can't have credibility on climate change and not also deal with the fact that you're growing your fossil fuel um, production and your fossil fuel exports. 
that's it. It's credibility. It's really what it comes down to. You know, we talk about this idea of social license. And I read an academic paper about the concept, which said that you go from uh, acceptance to 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 um, to welcoming it to, to trust, you know, and really we want to get ourselves, Australia, in a, into a position of trust, don't we, as oh. regards our Pacific, as regards everything. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. Like, and Australia is starting from a reputation of being basically the global lobbyist for the fossil fuel industry, for the coal industry. That's its reputation overseas. And I've, you know, had the privilege of negotiating on behalf of Australia at multiple UN climate conferences. And it's 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 a hard slog because you are starting from that position. Um, and so if Australia wants to be taken seriously and credibly, or in the words of Minister Bowen to say, you know, we're back, then it needs to address its fossil fuel production and its fossil fuel exports. And if Australia wants to host a UN climate conference, it needs to recognise that it's going to bring the whole world here and they're going to be asking questions and those questions go beyond just what are you doing to meet your domestic target, but what are you doing about you know the 100-plus fossil fuel projects in the pipeline? Um, because that is a big concern and it will keep getting raised and we heard it from our Pacific neighbours and we'll keep hearing it again. And if we just turn it round, uh, uh, back to Giles, uh, but the, uh, on the other hand, if I stand in uh, the Prime Minister's shoes, I can see that uh, we are the world's second or third largest fossil fuel exporter. It does bring in a lot. It does improve our exchange rate. Very, and it, it matters to the average well-being today of the Australians today, if, even if it's going to you know, damage the future of everyone else. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, you have to see... Oh, both sides of it, don't I, I, you? I reckon, David, that 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 the both sides thing's been talked up. I think we actually don't get a good deal out of all the gas and coal that we sell. I reckon our tax regime is is woeful in terms of pulling our fair share of that. I mean, especially when you compare it to the petro states in terms, or even Norway in terms of how they tax their their resources. It's ridiculous. And if if you look at it just on the raw numbers, right? Um, the PRT, the Petroleum Resources Rent Tax, brings in maybe about a billion, right? We export about as much as, as Qatar in terms of LNG, and Qatar makes about $26 billion. Like, it, it's just woeful in terms of how we actually tax our resources. So we don't get a, a fair bit. You'd have to add the state royalties into that. Sorry, sure. keep going. No, no, but, you, but the state royalties are to pay for those resources in the same way that a builder pays for his bricks, right? Like, that that's basically the payment for the good that you're taking, the income tax is just ridiculously low. If you look at five of the biggest gas companies that are members of Appia, they made over 130 billion in terms of in terms of revenue over the last seven years from Queensland coal seam gas, and they paid zero in income tax. I mean, Chevron's been successfully charged for income for for profit shifting uh, by the ATO. Like these companies do everything they can to pay as little as tax as possible. They employ very few Australians compared to other industries. Um, and on top of that, they get a huge amount of subsidies from the government, right? There's over $10.5 billion that the federal government gives to subsidize fossil fuels. Now, not all of that's going to the industry, but that's to subsidize fossil use. And if you think about the benefit, we have record high gas prices in Australia because we opened up to the export market, because we didn't reserve any for ourselves. And, you know, we're paying for the privilege by subsidizing it. And we're going to subsidize it further right, with all these additional subsidies that have been cited. So the whole thing is just a bit of a beat up. I think we need to take a step back and recognize that actually the time has come for us to see how fossil fuels can be phased down or at least we stop growing the problem 
let's let's look seriously about a moratorium on new coal and gas. Great burst. Yeah, fantastic. Look, um, just to quickly onto some other subjects. Um, the other big thing happening at the moment is the rewrite of the national market rules. We've had the ESB come up with their proposal for um, a, um, a, um, a capacity market of some sort. I mean, this is kind of like a bit of a throwaway word now, capacity market means so many things to so many different people. But it was quite remarkable that almost unanimity, with the honourable exception of Trevor St. Baker and a couple of the lobby groups, that saying the ESP, they've got it completely wrong. Um, if they're worried about coal exits, they've got to separate that from having any sort of incentive to have new capacity in there. Um, I guess the concern now, Richie, is that the ESB has been pursuing the same line relentlessly, despite all the advice against it for the last year. I don't see how they can actually change by the end of year deadline. They've got to come up with the market rules. What should happen in this place? There's a big push I hear or I see um, from groups saying, look, there's a couple of things that you could do in the meantime, like a storage target, like some other mechanisms to kind of fix this investment gap that we seem to have at the moment because no one understands what the rules are or will be, and then work more properly over a longer time to rewrite the post-2025 rules. Yeah, yeah. look, it, it is a predicament that, that Minister Bowen's inherited on the, on the post-2025 design by the ESB. Um, you know, we've got energy ministers meeting at the end of this week, hopefully to provide a bit more clarity on, on where to next. But this capacity, you know, market idea has always been flawed. Got to check it history. There are a number of alternatives. We help, you know, we signed an open letter along with, you know, um, you know, ACF and and Nexa and and PIAC and and IEFA and a whole bunch of other organisations, basically saying let's let's hit pause on this. Let's have another think about it because there's better ways that we can go about doing this. If really what you're after um, is ensuring that that we have you know we don't face the same kind of problems we've had in the last six months. There's other better ways to do this, um, and hopefully Minister Bowen with with you know his counterparts. They seem to be sharing more of the same positions. They're returning to a process that, that has more public um, visibility and hopefully more public accountability. And, and they'll respond to these concerns that are being raised rather than shrugging them off like in the past. Should the ESB continue? Should the ESB be, remain constituted? I mean, it was a recommendation that it sort of be sort of shut down at the end of last year. It was given an extension to come up with the rules. These rules have not sort of delivered on their purpose. Um, Rich, have you got any views on that? And I suspect David might have some. Yeah, look, it's a good question. It's, uh, I mean, there is certainly a need for leadership in this space to actually map out what our power grid and in particular how we retire our coal-fired power stations right like and whether it's the esb or whether there's some other way that we can do this and i often point to and your listeners probably know about the german coal commission like it'd be great to have just a clear well-supported if, if not delegated process to actually map out how we move things forward otherwise you know the esb is just gonna render itself irrelevant it's a la it's, well, I think it's management. I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of reporting, but not much actual responsibility uh, for outcomes. I was at lunch today with a senior figure in the electricity industry, and we were talking about skin in the game. Uh, you know, and it's, it's hard, like governments have skin in the game because they have to face the voters. But, you know, to an extent, uh, the executive has less. And I don't feel that the ESB and the AEMC are, are always in a turf fight at the moment, uh, to an extent. 
Uh, and then you've got the states. Uh, you know, uh, one of the good things so far is that there's a uh, Bowen is achieving, in my opinion, is bringing uh, some degree of sort of um, consensus back into the whole thing. And I, I you know, if, if this meeting on Friday gets some progress on putting the carbon objective into the uh, national electricity law, as we were talking about last week, I would regard the meeting as a success all by itself. But, but uh, you know, I think we're all, the consensus has, has always clearly been that we don't need a capacity market. The design of it is proceeding ridiculously slowly, uh, let's face it. And meanwhile, you know, time is passing and every day we just don't have enough wind and solar farms. I, I would like to see someone with more executive responsibility for achieving the ISP. I'd like to see someone put in charge of it and given, you know, some authority to actually make it happen. I guess that might be the energy minister. He's um, his Labor's got an eighty percent renewables target. Perhaps put it on them, but um, he can delegate it somehow to, as as Richie says, um, either a coal commission to manage the exit or um, someone to sort of um, manage the um, the uptake. But I guess New South Wales are doing an interesting job there with their infrastructure roadmap, and um, we've. Um, we're going to start to see the first of their auctions. It's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out and whether it is successful and whether they've got the design right, because if they have, it'll probably end up being a bit of a blueprint for the other states. Um, Richie and David, um, maybe go to David very first. Um, just any highlights of news of the week that we better quickly mention to the listeners before we um, hang up for the week? No, only that, you know, as we're moving out of the worst of winter and we've uh, avoided the worst of the rain, you know, the, the situation is mildly easing. It's mildly easing even in oil prices are coming down globally. There's still uh, a lot of pressure on. It's just not as extreme as it was. Mm. Richie, anything that's caught your eye? I'll just uh, on David's point, I think like uh, you know, ensuring that that car, uh, carbon and climate factor into the national electricity objective. I think that's been a long-running campaign of uh, the energy minister here in Canberra, um, Shane Rattenbury, at least in the past. And I reckon, I reckon there's a good chance now that we have you know a better federal minister that we might actually see it, which is a great thing. The other thing to look out for, though, is really there is a big review right now about the integrity of Australia's carbon credits by uh, Professor Chubb. Uh, but also worth noting that there is an equal concern globally about what's happening with, with the global carbon market and a whole bunch of greenwashing there. And, uh, and it's just worth remembering that the whole point of, you know, the whole point here for offsets is that they only offset the hard to abate bits that we can't deal with otherwise. But we've had things back to front in Australia. Offsets have been a go-to or a get-out-of-jail-free card when really we should be looking at systematic change and that's more investment in the right things and only going to offsets at the very end and that's been part of the problem. Interesting stuff. Okay, well, look, I'd just like to point out a couple of the um, other announcements um, this week on the uh, renewables front. Um, interesting, and a lot of it's about storage. So you had Genex today um, um, buying the two, um, two gigawatt um, Bulai Creek uh, project. Um, they're obviously fending off a bid from um, Atlassian billionaire Scott Farkai and his wife, um, which is an interesting thing. And they're actually going to go with a very, very big uh, battery project first and follow it up with solar. And uh, that's an interesting insight from Genex, who are already um, building the pumped hydro project and the Bouldercombe battery. So, and a couple of other different storage things have happened. Uh, Chris Bowen was up in Newcastle this week, um, um, unveiling or officially launching a new demonstration plant for um, graphite storage, um, which is going to be interesting to see if that actually works. And we also had the plugging in of the Raygen solar and storage 
um, operation down in Victoria, which is using solar towers and uh, what they call solar hydro storage. Now the solar towers are ready to go and are plugging in, plugged into the grid, but the solar storage bit will actually have to um, wait for another year because there's been sort of supply shortfalls and just that basic sort of logistics crunch. Um, but look interesting and some different technologies out there, all focused on storage, which I think is interesting. Giles, um, uh, Giles, yes, we should mention, uh, you know, no week would be complete without a new Andrew Forrest uh, feasibility study into a green hydrogen project. And we got one of those, of course, this week. It's uh, terrific. And also the other thing that caught my eye just getting back onto conventional gas is that Squadron, Andrew, and talking about Twiggy Forest, is that Squadron Energy is building this uh, LNG import terminal at New South Wales but hasn't got any customers. So, you know, this idea of a gas shortage is just quite obviously bullshit. It's just that people don't want to pay global prices when uh, even Richie would probably agree that allocative efficiency uh, means that you do you should pay the price to the highest bidder and just tax tax the person producing it. But anyway, <laughs> Richie, you got one more chance. <laughs> oh look, you know th- th- we don't have a gas supply problem on the east coast. We have a gas export problem, uh, and that that's been the case ever since we opened those three terminals, and now we're still suffering. Best thing we can do is get off gas, and it's great to see that you know the uh, electrification plan from the ACT came out as well, which has a big push to oh, get yes, off gas. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. By 2040, just sort of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's some really interesting initiatives in Victoria and Western Australia um, as well, um, starting to take suburbs and towns and regional centres off gas and sort of close down the grid. It's um, really quite interesting. Of course, the gas industry doesn't like it in one little bit. Um, guys, um, we could keep on talking, but we mustn't. Um, we'll wrap it up there. Richard Mersian from the Climate Institute, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And it's the Australian Institute, but we did inherit the remains of the Climate Institute. Oh, my God. Did I just say the Climate Institute? I did too. Sorry, the Australian That's Institute. Right. Look, I... the, the legacy of the Climate Institute lives on in the Australian Institute. Oh, God, I hope I didn't say that all the way through the podcast. Um, um, just a, a faux pas at the end. Deary me, apologies. Um, David, um, I think I got your name right. So thanks once again for joining the podcast. And, and, th- <laughs> and, and thanks, Richie. Uh, look, I really enjoyed the discussion today. It was terrific. Yeah, ditto. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And look, thanks to everyone out there, listeners. Um, we had 70,000 downloads in the last month, which is pretty good for a niche um, energy podcast sort of centred around Australia. So um, thanks, everyone, for sort of taking the time to listen. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, um, Evergent, Pylon and um, Jet Charge. And uh, we'll be back again um, next week with another podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.